Hey friends, welcome to the Permission to Be podcast. This is a very, very, very special episode and I'm so excited to finally be bringing it to you. We welcome back to the podcast Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. This conversation is rich and deep and oh, by the way, it is our first live podcast ever recorded here on Permission to Be. So excited about that. So that means there will be no music interwoven, um, but I did want to give a shout out to Petty Thieves Brewery here in Charlotte, North Carolina for hosting us. Our dear friend, Ted, thank you so much. If you're ever in Charlotte, make sure you check out Petty Thieves. Um, Also throughout this conversation there's going to be a lot of references to either essays books materials or organizations two organizations that i want to mention from the outset one is mentioned in the podcast episode gideon's army they're doing grassroots on the ground work in nashville tennessee um, and dr robin explains a bit more about them And then there's also Feed the Movement here in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is also doing grassroots organizing and mutual aid efforts here within the city around um, cash bail reform and making sure that people have their basic needs met. And so if um, a part of your practice is supporting the work that helps us change and create societies, I encourage you to look those organizations up. I'm going to put links to them in the show notes. Um, I did want to mention that because this is a live conversation, at times you might hear a little bit of distortion um, in the from the microphones, and if that is really distracting, I offer uh, our apologies. We were not able to edit that out. This conversation will wrap up this series that we've been in, the moment of now, and I think it's just a really beautiful way to wrap up as we enter into another rotation of electoral politics that works its way into this conversation, and really this conversation's for those who um, are in spiritual community, who work in corporations, and are interested um, in the body's intersection with politics is robust and we're just really excited thank you for being in community with us Um, can't believe we're on season four we're gonna end out the year with some really beautiful conversations and launch into next year and we're thinking about ways that we can connect with you so hope you enjoy um, and I hope you benefited from our discussion around the, the moment of now in this series of discussions. And we'll see you on the other side. Take care. Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. Let's hit him with the remix. Oh, well, y'all got to change yes. that. Yes. <laughs> what do we do? Uh, we leave our f bonds in and... Let's tell some stories. As long as white people are bound, the people in power are bound, they're gonna keep us bound to the same thing that they're bound to. 
Out of, out, of the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think out of the overflow of the spirit, the body does. Why, why is that the best that God could offer you? Mike made it very clear that he did not want to get any of these questions beforehand. So he is getting this question live, raw, for the very first time. This is, um, yeah. and I feel like art is the expression of the heart where uh, words fail. Oh my goodness, I have tears. Oh, y'all are killing it. Unfiltered. I feel like that's gotta sound strange. The mission to be. Uh, actually, my 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 literary agent, when we were talking about what book might I write, he was like, I mean, A Black Man with Hope is an interesting book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> And Robin, I don't know if you remember, but this is actually the third time we're having a podcast conversation. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 So you are the most frequent guest. Oh, frequent flyer miles. Yes. <laughs> Extra beer. Yeah. Yeah. Not the first time they've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> and there we have it. <laughs> we should have waited until we were live for me to say that because it would have been much better if we did that. On <laughs> we can edit that in. Yes. Desmond, just hit go and what's this? <laughs> Is it going, Desmond? Yeah, okay, okay, okay. Oh, okay. okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> Hello, friends. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is Tommy here. Um, and this is, ooh, this is our first real live episode with an audience and people. Hello, people. Woo! <laughs> Um, today we are, this is a podcast collaboration with some dear, dear, dear friends. You already know Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa, they, them, of the Activist Theology Project. We are accompanied today by um, Anna Galladay. Yes. Um, who is the engagement curator. Oh, She's yes. the everything at the Activist Theology Project. <laughs> I bring I bring the beauty. She brings the brains. Nice, nice. <laughs> we do not have Olivia here today because no. Olivia is in Atlanta, but we do have Becca, <laughs> your comrade, break up with white Jesus. <laughs> For those in the audience, you can't see, but I'm wearing Andre Henry's um, break up with white Jesus shirt, and right next to us happens to be a portrait of white Jesus. White <laughs> Jesus. Yes. Yeah. So earlier, I took a picture with that. Um, portrait and flipped it off. So, <laughs> <laughs> welcome. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this 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 will be what it's going to be. <laughs> um, it will post on Permission to Be's um, website as well as Activist Theology Project. The beauty of collaborative yes. efforts, and also we have an audience mic for y'all. So at some point in the conversation, y'all can access questions and engage. So super excited. <laughs> they're like, nah. <laughs> y'all, it's like six. And they're like, mm-mm. No. <laughs> As they pick up their beers and walk away. <laughs> I'm actually excited that I can count the number of people in the audience because people overwhelm me. Yeah. And so I feel very excited that it's manageable. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, it, the small intimacy, yeah. you know, so. And then lastly. Like, like the Amish say, small is all. Ooh. We need Aww. to get back to that. Yes, yes. And then um, a big thank you for Ted to Ted, uh, owner of Petty Thieves, for hosting us today. So, Woohoo! Yeah, yeah. Well, 
we are here to talk about um, lots of things, but a big catalyst for this conversation, um, you just put a book into the world, Rob, mm -hmm. Dr. Robin. I birthed a book during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pandemic baby. It's yeah. <laughs> Body Becoming, A Path to Our Liberation. Um, and I'm just gonna read the inside cover. The body that Robin Henderson Espinoza inhabits is a non-binary body, a trans body, a body in two races, and a body continually in discovery. Theirs is also a body on sojourn, invested in experience, body understanding and engagement in and for human thriving. Henderson Espinosa relates coming into a new body story, beginning with the deep emotional work of connecting the abstract intelligence of their mind, brilliance, yes, with their body's intelligence to explore the relationship between living and becoming, doing and listening. So. Super excited, super excited. Um, this year, how we are coming into conversations is just kind of the grounding question of um, how are you coming into the space today? Mm. That's such a great question. I, um, well, a couple things. I, I was just telling Anna earlier, we went to the Giddy Goat for coffee, which was, it was really good coffee. and had an empanada, which was very good. Mm. And I was just telling Anna as we were walking to the car, I love early spring because it's it's not so fucking hot like August <laughs> and I'm not sweating profusely. Um, so there's, there's something about this particular season which, I don't know, it sort of invites me into my body before it gets so hot that mm. I can't be in my body because I'm sweating profusely. I also love IPAs and they have a really good IPA oh here, yeah. the oh Andalusia. Yeah. Yes, Ted. So <laughs> thank you for that beer, it's amazing. I, I only drink IPAs and, and, and not everyone can make an IPA. Okay, yeah. that, that's just the truth. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm loving that the weather is amazing mm -hmm. and I'm loving that I have this tropical IPA and so I am feeling really present. Mm -hmm. I just finished a book by Thich Nhat Hanh on presence, and so I've been trying to pay attention to, like, am I able to smile at the stoplight when I'm driving instead of being frustrated that I am hitting every stoplight? Oh, so yeah. I'm, I'm here, I'm present, Aww. I'm looking forward to this conversation, and I have this amazing IPA. Thanks for the invitation to answer. Um, I, I will also share something that I told Dr. Robin last night. I am, um, I am a seven on the Enneagram, and so I say no to nothing. And <laughs> <laughs> what, that, what that also then means for me is that life at home is extremely frenetic, and I actually like it that way. Um, I like the busyness, I like, like the uh, energy, but I drove here yesterday from Chattanooga and there is something about a five hour drive when you actually can't do anything other than drive and <laughs> I mean, I mean, I took a phone call, but like I, I, I sink into that space mm. um, and, and I often offer to drive places instead of flying places because I find that 
like intentional break in my day to be mm. really necessary or break in my life really not in my day but uh, it's a necessary like reset for me yeah. Yeah. and so even as I woke up this morning and kind of find myself here I um, I have a lot on my plate and yet none of that plate is not in front of me right now mm. and so I feel as if I'm uh, I'm like separated from the energy and the frenetic nature of life at this moment, which actually feels um, good for me um, as, as someone who, who doesn't always welcome that, mm. that kind of like sinking into. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. <laughs> Tommy's giving me the side eye. <laughs> <laughs> Only because you're on my side. <laughs> I'm trying to get to where you are at, uh, Anna, and just sitting and being because my week has been going, 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 and not, it's not bad, but I haven't had a lot of space to have uh, moments of breathing. Like, I actually, before I got in my car, I stopped and felt the ground and t took three deep breaths, mm. which resets our nervous system and reminds us that we are okay. We don't need to go into fight or flight. Mm. Um, but I will say I am coming in and excited for this conversation um, because as I was listening to you, Robin, read your book, um, an audible version, and I actually felt hopeful because coming out of the pandemic, no, we're not out of the pandemic, scrap that. That's very able-bodied <laughs> to say that. But being in a pandemic, I feel like has sucked a lot of hope. And mm. so the last two days I've been immersing myself in the wisdom that Robin has so willingly shared. And it feels like, oh, if we, there's possibility, there's possibility. So I'm coming in feeling like there is a rope that I can uh, hold to for some guidance. Mm. Mm. See, I, I feel like I'm coming in a little all, all over the place, but I feel my grounding starting, you know, the ground kind of rising to, to catch me. Um, I, like, I think I woke up with the mentality, oh my gosh, I have to finish the book today, I have to finish mm. your book today. And so I started my day in that direction mm. and I was like I'm gonna like be listening and do my nails and just take this time for myself and then my phone rang and I'm a two on the Enneagram and so it was my mom um, asking for some help out in the yard um, and so it was really interesting like I messed up my nails and I was like oh, I'm gonna take it off and but then I was like I'm gonna let this be a reminder uh, to, to kind of ground me and call me back into my body today. Um, because one, they're black and yellow. You can't uh, see that right now. But there's also imperfections um, in them. So uh, the, the black kind of is the somber part of me. The yellow is like the bright, bubbly part of me. But the imperfections just um, how I desire to show up, mm -hmm. especially since our culture of white supremacy is so rooted in perfectionism. Mm -hmm. What does it look like to begin to embody 
um, a holy imperfection with the body. But then also more deeply, it was a call back to how am I giving myself the time that I agree to give myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's just going to be my meditative reminder today. And um, more currently, I am just really excited to be in the presence of your bodies mm-hmm. um, and your energies. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, for our permission to be audience, they know Dr. Robin a little bit, but Anna, would you like to take a, some space and kind of introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Um, hi, friends. Uh, <laughs> I am uh, Reverend Anna Galladay. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. And I, as you heard earlier, I drove in from uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. I reside there with my partner of 20, almost 25 years. Um, and he's my favorite white guy. He is <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a true story. Um, and my amazing pit bull, Ruthie Bader, um, who is the yes. love of my life. And she like wields that gavel. Like she rules the house. <laughs> she knows she, it. She knows it. Um, and I am, uh, I'm a United Methodist pastor um, in the tradition of John Wesley. Um, I am also, um, in addition to my uh, faith and theology background, I'm a a trained uh, designer and marketer. That was my life before and in the midst of my um, pastoral work. And I probably the thing, the most exciting thing about me is that I have this amazing little uh, snarky t-shirt shop that uh, sells all kinds of uh, queer positive and uh, supremacy smashing Mm -hmm. t-shirts. They're amazing. uh, That um, Robin sports a lot of them and it's like the most fun I get to have is like coming up with really funny and snarky sayings on I, shirts. I even created a shirt that is selling well. It is, Let's yes. don't forget that. I, I don't, I, <laughs> what does it say? You don't ever let I wish a Karen that. would. That was a birthday idea that I had. Yeah, it was. A couple years ago, yeah. and now it's like selling like hotcakes on our website. It's, it's selling. Yeah, because I'm that a, website? as it's I pick selling. up my phone to go purchase. <laughs> I know. I was like, "What is that website? What's your website?" Yeah, the the site is on Etsy, and it's called Bias and Bourbon. Mm. Uh, my two favorite things: uh, Bias and Bourbon. Oh, yeah. which Bourbon? Uh, which Bias? <laughs> <laughs> Bias, this is our bias about just about everything. <laughs> um, bourbon, I'm rather indiscriminate um, as long as it's better than Jim Beam. Jim Beam. <laughs> <laughs> yes, true story. We actually had that conversation last night. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my everyday go-to is Buffalo Trace. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to drink Whiskey Pig or Uncle Nearest if it's available. And um, I just, yeah, I love, I have a, sh- I have shelves of options at home. So. In, in <laughs> fact, there's a place called the Whiskey Warehouse. Yes, yep. in, in Nashville and here. Oh, it's in Nashville too? Yeah. 
Is that the whiskey warehouse? It's a frugal, or are you thinking a, a restaurant? It's well, a I restaurant don't. in Plaza, in Plaza. Oh, in Plaza, yeah. sorry, yeah. I'm mixing it up. Yeah, and I was like, oh, we need to know about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there is a frugal McDougal in Nashville. And the other one is here. Ah. Yeah. So that's a little bit about me. Thank and you. I work, and I do a lot of work with the Activist Theology Project. Yeah, and I keep you. And I keep robbing on time places, and um, I, am, I, am, I am the energy that they need to extrovert in many cases. Mm, yeah. in, in all cases? I, wi I, wi I wind them up and yep. tell them, okay, it's time. Yep. I'm going to turn it on <laughs> and then remind them when it's okay to turn it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's so beautiful. It is, I'm just kind of struck how direct also you are in describing the relationship. Um, one of the questions that I asked as we were prepping for this was kind of like, what is your role for this um, conversation going to be? Like, how do we include you? And in, in obviously, because it's an equalized uh, structure, but um, with your uh, neurodiversity, autism, which we'll talk about more um, in how we are becoming, how you are modeling relationship right now is really, really beautiful. I love that you. I love that you notice that, um, and I, I love it because it's a conversation that Robin and I have all the time, mm -hmm. um, and a conversation that we've been deeply engaged in for the last four years, and that we've done publicly we've in done several publicly. places. Um, mm. We are. Um, th I mean, there couldn't be two more different humans than than Robin and I, and yet we are both neuro neurodivergent. Um, I am. Uh, I have pretty serious um, ADD, um, and um, and we are complete opposites on the Enneagram <laughs> as a seven, and, and Robin as a five. Um, we show up in the world very differently, um, and we communicate very differently, and yet we at, and we have found it difficult at times to really navigate our way through what relationality looks like, um, both in our bodies and in our hearts and in our heads. Mm. And um, so th like, thank you for noticing that because I think it, it affirms, I think a lot of the work that we've been doing um, at both publicly and um, in our personal, um, but yeah, it's, mm. it's nice that you, oh. that you see that. Yeah. Well, and, and I don't know if, if we want to go there right now, but you know, thinking about myself as a Latina, as a trans person, as a queer person, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm not trying to collect white people to work with, <laughs> and and yet, part of my vocational life is working deeply with white folks, yeah. and Anna is is one of the people with whom I get to chart some of this work, and you know, some some of the some of the work um, gets lived out in real time in our conversations. And then we're like, oh, I think the world needs to know about this, which is why we have public, public conversations around the importance of bridging with radical difference and, and, and what it means to um, compost white body supremacy and how to actually build relationships with difference. Um, and you know, like every book event that I'm doing is in collaboration. And so it didn't make sense to me 
to come to Charlotte and be on your podcast alone or do something at Watershed alone, what was really important to me is chart a conversation in community. Mm. And, and, you know, if the book does something good in the world, great, I want it to. But, but what I really want people to experience is we deeply need relationship right now. Mm. We, we are connection deprived. Yes, and with, you know, I, I kind of believe years ago the fourth world war started with the rise of capitalism, neoliberalism, mm -hmm. and hyper-individualism. And so we are really battling how to even navigate relationships. And, and I've, I've said this on our podcast, and, and maybe even I said it on your podcast uh, when I was on last year, but we, we really don't know how to be human with one another again. Yeah. And part of that is because how accelerated disembodiment has become mm -hmm. and how we privilege transactions mm -hmm. over generative relationalities. And so race is a part of that, class is a part of that, ableism is a part of that. Um, so we've got to figure out together, Anna and I, you know, how do we chart generative relationships? And then how do we, how do we execute that in the world in a way that can be internalized and embodied and lived out? Mm. So good. So you said a lot there that I kind of want to maybe let's journey to and kind of talk about why permission to be exists, why activist theology project um, exists. Um, but maybe let's kind of pull back and define some terms, create some common language, common understanding. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be disembodied? Mm -hmm. Anna, do you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard no. Um, so I, I, I'm really public about this in the book that in 2015 I showed up to my therapist who I continue to see. And I said, I want to have a relationship with my body. And I had felt, you know, I had lived a long life in academia and I went, you know, college, seminary, PhD, all sort of at the same time, you know, start to finish. And I had learned very well how to be a thinking machine and how to devote time to thinking and very little time to considering my body or the importance of my body or that my body has wisdom. And so I walked into my therapist's office and said, I'd like to have a relationship with my body. And I, and I when I was younger, my, my mother, who is a brown caramely hue, had asked me, does anyone ever make fun of you for the color of your skin? So I knew that I was different mm. from her, but I, you know, I didn't have the language for race or racism or how melanin deficient people are often in a process of disembodiment and until much later. And so I have been on, you know, a seven year journey of trying to get into my body and I'm still very much at the cusp of that, but you know, very much um, learning to listen to my body. But you know, I I would say, if we're looking for a definition for disembodiment, I would just simply say a, a tangible disconnection from one's felt sense. Mm. I mean, I think I I. 
I described disembodiment a few moments ago yep. Um, yep. when I used the phrase body, mind, heart. Um, <laughs> just the simple fact that we assign characteristics and processes to those three silos affirm the disembodiment that we have mm -hmm. within ourselves. Yeah. Uh, because, um, you know, and, and even in the church, um, we, you know, talk most recently, you know, last week about the resurrection and mm -hmm. we assign definitions to body and definitions to spirit. Mm -hmm. And those de definitions are different. Yes. And in most cases, Spirit transcends and is higher than body. And yet, and, and that's what disembodiment and supremacy culture tells us. Mm -hmm. um, our disembodied selves affirm in us the notion that um, a broken heart is a brokenness that we feel in our heart and our head. And that a broken foot is a brokenness that we feel in our body and in our head. That's and that uh, a stroke is a brokenness that we feel in our head and our body. And yet all three of those things are so radically intertwined and, and we silo them and assign priority to mm -hmm body, mind, heart, or body, mind, spirit in ways that create this hierarchy and this uh, assumption of priority, it, it, it in and of itself affirms our disembodiment. And it is because of that that we um, allow ourselves to not feel deeply within our literal bones what heartbreak does to us or feel deeply within our hearts what an illness or what a, a broken bone does to us. I mean, those things, we, we have done that to ourselves. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, for me, that that is the, I mean, that is how I would define or describe disembodiment and my own disembodiment mm -hmm. to others. just noticing for like our culture mm -hmm. like yeah. I, I think that disembodiment um is we don't it's the water we swim in mm -hmm. because our, our our culture our our imperialistic culture our white supremacist culture doesn't want us to feel because when we start to feel things we start to notice that maybe some things are off <laughs> or amiss. Um, so is learning to give what I'm hearing is the, the embodiment then would be learning to listen to how our bodies are responding internally and to the things, the stimulus around us. Yeah, I think the integration of, of our being of our literal beingness and, and acknowledging how all of those things work in conjunction to both be in relationality with others, 
but also to feel both the joy and the pain that the world brings upon us mm-hmm. are, are critical. I, I, I don't know how, um, I don't know how we can not get there um, if, we, if we see hope for the world. Mm-hmm. Well, I, was, I think a lot of it comes from this uh, narrative in the supremacy culture of fear that we are afraid of not only the connection, but we're afraid of what we're going to find. And we're afraid that that's going to be too much. And for so many of us, life already feels too much. And so that fear, we hold on to that fear like it's going to save us instead of seeing the damage it's doing. Um, Robin, how were you able to come to the point that you felt safe to go into that place of desiring to become embodied? I, I remember distinctly, I was waiting for the bus in Denver to um, go somewhere and I was verbally accosted by someone having a mental health crisis. Mm. And I was, you know, in my dissertation process, so I obviously was writing a lot, mm-hmm. but this this person, um, he, you know, bless his heart, he, he was struggling, <laughs> but he said a lot of things at me, mm-hmm. and and I thought for a moment, gosh, if I don't figure out a way to have a relationship with my body, mm-hmm. it very well could be, this could be my experience. Mm-hmm. I, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm not trying to be funny. Like, yeah. I think are that- you, When you say this could be your experience, you, are you saying you could be, it could be in the reverse? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that, um, experiences of things like paranoia or disassociation or psychosis is very much just beneath the surface. Uh, You know, there's, and I write about this, just being a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, my body has absorbed so much Mm -hmm. trauma and abuse that it's, it's gonna come out somewhere. Yeah. And it was that experience that I was like, shit, I gotta get my ducks in a row. And it wasn't until several years later when I showed up at my therapist's office, but it, it was really that experience in Denver where I was like, I, I've really gotta figure out how to you know, suture these wounds. Because mm. I could intellectualize them, yeah. but it's very different to have empathy for oneself mm. and to care for oneself and to, you know, unpack the trauma and abuse that I endured as a child from a single parent who was a woman of color. Mm. Um, you know, how do I deal with being bullied as sc- at school for being gender nonconforming as a sixth grader when in the 80s that wasn't a thing, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. So it was really that experience with, with um, a person who we you know we would say has lost his damn mind, you know, 
And I'm like, wow, I could be super close to that if I don't figure out how to um, address the trauma and, and figure out how to engage in healing practices. Now, that, I mean, that was years before I walked into my therapist's office, right? Um, yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I have spent a lifetime reading like really unintelligible theory, which did not promote bodily awareness. <laughs> so I, all Descartes. to say, yeah, I mean, all to say, I, I had a lot to unhinge from and unwind mm. from. And, and my therapist, God bless her, you know, I'm sure that she's like, you know, fuck my entire life. This is taking so slow. But she's been really gentle with me to to help me. I mean, sometimes we just breathe together. And then she says, where do you notice that? Mm. I mean, it's really basic. And and so, I, I mean, even though I've written a book on bodies embodiment democracy, I'm very much at the starting gate around this stuff. But it was really that experience that that was like, well, if I don't, if I don't figure out how to address all of these different narratives of violence and trauma, abuse, displacement, poverty, I might lose my mind. Mm. Mm. What I love about that is that it's not about arrival, which is what supremacy culture teaches us, which is what capitalism teaches us, that there are steps A, B, C, D, and E, and once you've checked them all off, you've arrived, you've completed it, checked it off, and moved on. I don't think that that is even a real narrative. It's just a narrative that keeps us going. Mm -hmm. And I love that you have sessions and that you have an amazing therapist who creates space for breathing. Yeah, I ask her every week, you're, you're not retiring anytime soon, are you? <laughs> like, like, I'm a lifelong learner with you, right? And, and I'm on a, I'm, she does a socialist economy where she does a sliding scale for people. That's beautiful. And I am very much on the lower end of the sliding scale, you know, and and I so I just you know, like every so often I kind of check in. I'm like, you're you're not going away, are you? And and I still can't pay your full fee. And is that okay? And and she's like, yeah, this is why I have people who can pay my full fee so I can see you. I'm like, oh, thank God, thank God for the rich white men. Who <laughs> white men who still believe in therapy. <laughs> right, yeah. So if I can just, I'm, I'm just noticing some things here. Um, one, having gone through parts of the book, one, how you've ordered it, what you're describing sounds like a rupture mm -hmm. um, that was kind of not necessarily a breaking point, but, but there was some disruption that happened in that encounter um, that you were like, oh, okay, there's an awareness that I am not in my body the way that I want to be and me not being in my body the way I want to be is going to cause me to be in relationship with others in a way mm -hmm. um, that I don't wanna be. So is rupture necessary? Um, on this journey, on this process? Like, why is embodiment even important? Mm -hmm. Why do we need to have these noticings um, or this awareness? Anna? <laughs> 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 you 
you, you I, can even talk about our ruptures. I, 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 I'm going to. Okay. <laughs> She's going to spill the tea. Here it comes. I mean, I think, you know, I am, I mean, I will start by saying I am conditioned as a well-intentioned white woman. Um, that has been my conditioning for the entirety of my life. And I, too, am a survivor of sexual violence. Um, I'm also the daughter of a human who um, reminded my mother continuously how unattractive she was and affirmed her weight issues every chance he had and uh, publicly shamed others as I was growing up uh, around weight issues. Um, and so I kind of moved into my 20s and my 30s uh, as someone who was not only um, dealing with and, and trying to find my way through what supremacy culture had done to me, um, looking back now, but also um, really having a lot of self-loathe yeah. for m myself, my body type, my weight, my, um, you know, I mean, anything that, that was the antithesis of what um, my, my bio father deemed um, good. Yeah. And so, as I disentangled myself from the shame associated with that, which, you know, therapy is really great at, um, I still didn't understand, like, I was able to intellectualize the message, like a change in messaging in my head and an affirmation of my worth and an affirmation of my beauty and, and all of those things, and I wasn't able to actually understand how my mind needed to tell my body that. Mm. <laughs> and so I had done all of this, you know, work around, you know, shame and, 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 and you know, my, my own self-hatred. And um, Robin and I had had a conversation, we, we, several things had happened and we had ended up having a conversation that um, resulted in me being extremely emotional around kind of where we had ended up and Robin being curious as to why that was my response. And I, I said, you know, I am, I am afraid of being discarded. I, I don't want my inability to grow as fast as what I feel as if you are wanting will result in my, in me being left aside. Like I wanna do this work with you and I wanna do this work with activist theology and I, I my fear of conflict and my fear of being less than and my shame over not being able to do this as well as I feel like I'm being asked to do this is bringing up all of that crap. Yep. And 
they said they said two things to me. They said, you know, first, like we're in relationship. Discarding is not an option. Mm-hmm. Like I Woo! I I can be I, like I'm paraphrasing, but I can be as frustrated with you and this work as I need to be, but I am not letting you go anywhere. And the second thing they said to me was, um, and you've got to fucking stop doing this with just your head. Mm-hmm. You've, you've got to start doing this with your body. You've got to start figuring out what, how embodiment and how your inability to recognize your own embodiment and the embodiment of others in this work is limiting you from being able to get to where I would like to see you get. And again, those are paraphrases, but I mean, that was the resulting conversation. And I, that, that was my rupture. Um, that was the point where I, I mean, I had, you know, I had dabbled in, uh, you know, somatic practice from a standpoint of um, Robin's partner is um, trained in, in somatics and, and had, you know, led us in a lot of beautiful ways, but um, it was very, like, arm's length mm-hmm. for yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and I... I I had a reckoning of like they're like they're right. Like I can't I can't I I was either going to so for many years my trauma um, came out just came out of like the pores of my body. Yeah. Um, because I was I either showed off what I thought was willing, you know, was was worthy of being shown off, or I like curled in for things that weren't worthy of being shown off, um, and I was finding that my trauma was now leaking out of all parts of me. I I, I couldn't. It wasn't just simply a, a you know like the like a vessel like a, yeah. a literal skin thing yeah. a body thing yeah and and that was rupture for me and so yes there is a um, there is a, a point I think that we all will come to of where we have to recognize that that disconnect is creating significant barriers to um, the the work that we need to be doing and also um, I think that our that our our therapy culture is doing a great disservice to many of us in that um, there are real finite ways as to how there there's a perspective of how healing happens. Yes. And in almost every instance, that healing does not include the body for most therapists. And so um, it's both a a sharing of my own story and also an indictment on what I think many of us who have kind of used used therapy to to work through a lot of the things we feel like we need to work through, like that's still not getting us there. Yeah. No, I mean, as a person who is partnered with a therapist 
uh, myself. Um, a person, my partner, um, has a degree from a uh, Christian university. And so their journey has also been after therapy and, learn, and is still in the process of learning um, the embodiment piece. Um, because, yeah, I could go on a tangent, so I'm trying to like, <laughs> just like, um, but it is, uh, therapy is so important, um, but like you said, Anna and Rob, it, the embodiment piece, it should be a requirement. Yeah, can I, can I just respond to some of what Anna shared? Yes, please. So I, I think that in, in a lot of ways, white body folks don't know how to do conflict, and conflict is a part, Say it. conflict is about any relationship, like it's inevitable. And I think what, you know, why I talk about rupture and, and my, my training is in Deleuze and Foucault, and so my, my thinking about rupture is also about power and relationships. And so, you know, Anne and I have had several ruptures that, that obviously we, we've worked through. I'm a Leo and I'm deeply loyal. Yes, fire. Yes. And so, so <laughs> the. I'm a cancer, so I'm yeah, really cancer, crusty, baby. crusty on the outside, but like a real mush, real mush on the inside. We're real yeah. soft. Aquarius. <laughs> Aaron is an Aquarius. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But, you know, my, my, um, my ethics of being in relationship is to honor the space and time that conflict needs and, and to find a way forward together, not, not to dispose people. I mean, so much of our culture disposes people, we cancel people. I mean, I have, I've made a lot of comments about cancel culture and the ways it, it mimics uh, supremacy culture. And, you know, the Activist Theology Project, it's relationships all the way down for us. Mm. Like, if we don't know how to be in relationship, how can we then help people compost supremacy culture or white-bodied supremacy? And so one of the things that we, I, I think, do very well is be in conversation, mm. talk about where we have conflict, and like, you know, steward that time together in as thoughtful ways as we can. And I will say that when this came up with Anna, it impacted me too and compelled me deeper into my embodiment work. And so it wasn't just Anna that changed, it was changing me too. And that's the real beauty of relationships. Relationships mm -hmm. should evolve over time. Yes. People should change over yes. time. And, and I think it made our work stronger. And, and certainly it, it deepened our connection and I think our commitment to the work. And it helped us to see where, where the pitfalls are in, in our cultural makeup and the ways in which our cultural body, it, it really is unable to have the conversation that Anna and I had, which is, which is why we have um, a fold of racism that started with white on white violence. Mm. So let me just maybe extract some things in that. Um, so based what I'm hearing, not what I'm hearing in that one is every one, every body tells a story, has a story, is a story um, in relationship to other bodies and other stories. Mm -hmm. um, another 
kind of area that I'm noticing is is the traumatic nature of just being in relationship, right? And so um, our bodies are naturally going to do what bodies does to respond to that trauma, fight, uh, flight, flee, fawn. Collapse. Collapse. Mm -hmm. Which is my trauma response. I, I go to sleep. I get in the bed under the covers and I go to sleep. Mm. I've always done that. True story. Mm. And it's in when we're not able to reconcile the relationship that, are we saying that this rupture becomes problematic, unprocessed, unprocessed pain, unprocessed trauma, which leads to what we might experience as individual oppression, but also collective oppression, right? Because there's a, we haven't even got to the, like, right now we're just kind of talking about the individual space, the but we kind of alluded to it, it affected you too. So what we experience as individuals has a collective mm -hmm. effect as well. So are, are those? I mean, I mean, I write about in the book that uh, oppression is unprocessed trauma. Mm -hmm. and, and oppression can be internalized by an individual. Uh, I mean, I, I had a lot of self-hatred for myself being light-skinned and, and being able to pass for white. You know, because my, my mom has faced racism for a long time. And so I had a lot of internalized oppression around that and self-hatred. And so, yeah, I would say that um, unprocessed trauma is oppression and that can occur individually and almost always occurs collectively, a as we can see in our culture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I would just add that I, I, think, it, I think it goes even farther than us as human-bodied people. Um, all of us, every, every ounce of this creation is cellular on a level that um, interacts both through energy and through um, the, well, the exchange of energy you yeah. know, with one another. Yeah. And so um, it is through the individual unprocessed trauma and disembodiment of humans that creation is affected and mm. is is yeah. is being is dying before our eyes it is through um, it is through the i mean th there are studies that will will show how even the most well tended houseplants in a home of that that is full of violence and hatred and trauma and disembodiment mm -hmm. are not able to thrive you know th there, there's th a collective like i mean we oh, wow. yeah i mean we <laughs> are we are we are knitted together in in a in a way that i mean the tapestry of us as individuals does not stop at the edge of our skin or at the edge of the skin of the hand we hold. Mm -hmm. It That tapestry extends into the universe and mm -hmm. into the grass that we walk on and into the animals that coalesce around us and into the plants that are in the ground that we nurture or don't. I mean, all of that is 
interrelated and mm -hmm. interconnected. And so when we are unprocessed in our disembodiment and the, the work of, of, of moving trauma from oppression into liberation, we aren't the only ones that are suffering. And, and it's often really easy to, as, as, as we are wont to do, just remind ourselves how it's about us and, and not about one another, not just about one another, but about the collective, the entire collective. Well, and our culture encourages us not to. Right. Because like, our culture would literally not thrive if we knew that connection. So how let's let's start to extend this, I guess, into that that political conversation, um, and and relationships are are political. You talk a bit about politics and body becoming. Um, maybe help orient us around how we currently understand politics, and maybe a vision of what you're calling us into. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I mean this is not new information uh, we we have distorted the term politics and mm -hmm. political in many respects uh, polis is a greek word which talks about how we organize bodies so i always say all theology is ethics and every ethical practice is political mm -hmm. because every practice we where we grocery shop where we buy our coffee it organizes bodies through things like social capital and other things so um, when I am talking about our politics in the world, I am primarily talking about how do we organize our bodies? How do we organize our individual bodies, our interpersonal bodies, and our collective bodies? This can extend to democracy or the democratic body. What does it mean to have a democratic body? What even is a definition of democracy? And we have, we have accepted a political practice of what functionally is a republic, which means the people don't have power. The power resides at the top in the government. Mm -hmm. And I am all about, I mean, the Zapatistas have inspired me for a long time. And uh, the Zapatistas, uh, which is the army in Chiapas who fought to um, help the, the indigenous people of Chiapas retain their sovereignty. And so I am very interested in power starting with the people versus being in an institution, power consolidated in an institution like the federal government. Um, that, that harms people, essentially, and that shapes people's bodies. Yeah. I mean, just look at some of our legislation coming down and it also impacts our, our world, our planet. And so I, I want us to not only talk about how to get into our bodies, but I also want us to be able to talk about how do we cultivate community? And how can communities embody a kind of power that can shape and shift our world? Because we are in desperate need of what I say, another possible world. We, we will not survive ourselves if we don't figure that piece out. I agree. Um, and, and, and yet we continue to 
and like no shade, but we continue to encourage black and brown people to run for office, but but that system is a broken system. Yeah. And so I feel very, and I don't deal with electoral politics. I mean, people all the time, they're texting me, will you give? And I have to say, I, this is not where my passion is and I don't think this system is working. And so I'm much more interested in on the ground work. I'm much more interested in like the Activist Theology Project has a reparations fund and about twice a year we give to local communities doing work on the ground. And one of the people that we give to is Gideon's Army, which is a Nashville based, education um, organization for particularly black people living in North Nashville, which is historically black mm -hmm. and has been gentrified and is in the process of being gentrified. So it's displacing people. It's also a place where a lot of gang activity emerges. And so Gideon's Army does a lot of education for black folks, young black folks helping young black folks not join gangs, helping them remain in school. And so I'm much more interested in giving power to the people, helping people have agency, rather than investing in, and again, no shade, but I would rather invest in community over a black or brown person running for politics, which will then just become complicit in the system. And, and, and you know, like I don't know what the outcome of that will be because that system is so flawed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so th that that's so good. That's so good. Be and I love the the no shade part because I think is that a nod to like this work of restructuring society happens in multiple. Yeah, I mean, I ways. I've always believed it takes a diversity of tactics. Mm -hmm. You know, and and I I mean people 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 criticize me all the time for continuing to read people like Augustine and St. John the Cross and you know and, and I'm like well they are our siblings in in this great cosmos we can learn from them they are not our bosses but we can learn from them and you know everybody's like well just throw that trash out and I'm like well I'm happy to read it and and critique it yeah. and also how how does you know we, we suffer from historical amnesia in this country. <laughs> I mean, say what? You mean? There's, 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 there's no historical memory in this country. At all. And so I am, I mean, I love history and I love looking at the threads of power in history. And, and so that is why I continue to read everything that has come before this present moment because it has shaped this present moment. And it shows up in our legislation. And so, you know, why is purity culture so, why has it been weaponized against people? Well, let's read Augustine and let's see how that philosophy has been imported and then weaponized against people. So, but, I, but I'm weird and a bit of a nerd and. Yeah, part of the reason that I continue to allow Robin to keep reading that is so that I don't fucking have to. <laughs> I mean, like, that's just not something that I'm interested in, yeah. but I love that they are, and um, also, like, I, yeah, I can't. I can't. I can't. So, so this, this is the Tommy version of what I'm hearing. Um, a disembodied presence is a disconnected presence. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we are disconnected from ourselves, 
um, and we're disconnected from each other. Mm -hmm. um, and when we're disconnected from each other, we're disconnected from the ways that we've arranged mm -hmm. ourselves yes. and society as well. And so this process of reconnecting with ourselves um, helps us to reconnect with others, yes. helps us to reconnect, acknowledge the ways we've structured society, but then in that awareness, be able to begin to shift and right. change. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we can't, we can't find ways to navigate this collective hope for liberation without um, kind of working through kind of that process that you just illustrated. Um, it is, it, it should not be lost on any of us that um, those of us that feel the pull of need from someone on a street corner with a sign are people who have been in relationship at one point or another in their lives with someone who has held a sign on a street corner. Whether that is through a, a volunteer opportunity that we have had with um, a shelter, whether it is through um, you know, a, a, a recognition of a, of a sibling or a loved one or someone we've been in community with who has, who has um, you know, used that method to survive. Um, we are, we are, we feel something at that stoplight mm -hmm. because we have knitted back together a piece of our disembodied self in order for all of us to feel something that compels us to engage in community with that person. Mm. It is the same with any other act of community that we decide to be involved with. I mean, no one, no one just decides to engage in a cause because every one of us tells a story of how we came to believe that that was some place that we needed to be, that, we, that, that our bodies needed to be, that our money needed to be because of the way that a relationship with someone else knitted us back together mm -hmm. so that we could mm -hmm. then move into that space in more intentional ways. Um, that, that phenomenon is what community is all about. And, and so I think that if, if we really seek the liberation that we say we seek, if we really are seeking to change or to, to, to find a new world for what, what the possibility could create for us, um, it is through recognizing that our own change came through the way that our body was changed by being in community with another, yeah. and then replicating that in robust ways so that that kind of liberation we seek is attainable. Mm -hmm. mm. mm. Inter-repetition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, th I think that part is really interesting as well because in this work I found myself doing the same things over and over 
asking myself, am I making a difference? And I think that that, that question is both rooted in, in capitalism, our desire to be productive, our desire to um, fix things, but repetition kind of can feel like we're marching mm -hmm. in place, mm -hmm. so to speak. But what does what what is the importance the value of, of repetition there? Well, f well, for me, repetition doesn't stand alone without difference. Yeah. And this is my this is my training in continental philosophy with a French post-war philosopher named Gilles Deleuze. He collaborated with a French psychiatrist named Felix Guattari. And his dissertation was on difference and repetition. So think of a clock, and I write about this in the book, that a, cl a clock repeats, but at every hour, well, at every second, there's difference. And so I think that's really important for how we do relationship, that the, the repetition of being in relationship, the repetition, um, the, our rhetorical devices, for example, of how we achieve relationship always happen in, in, in sort of concert with difference. And I think that you know, difference is that thing without a norm. We think about difference being um, this is different than that. Mm. But that is actually not difference. Mm. Um, and, and so when, when, when we really lean in to the politics of radical difference, really organizing around difference, we, we have to eradicate norms and values that perpetuate supremacy. And so when, when we do that, we get turned on to a completely different sort of orientation to relationship. It's why I can be in relationship with sex workers and drug users and you know, folks who have been discarded by society. Everyone needs community. Everyone needs belonging. Everyone needs connection. But we have these norms and values in place that actually impact our politics, how we organize bodies, which is why there's so much on the underside. And I, I think if we want to sort of think about the divine or God, it, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was Jesus talking about the least of these and the last shall be first. And if that doesn't change our practices in the world, if we don't look to the underside or the bleeding periphery, we, we might be selling a theology that is death bringing. Yeah, and the church is the church is great at that. Yes, I mean, we are historically well-intentioned people mm -hmm. who use a, a who have a preferential bend toward missionology and salvation, and neither of those things foster community. Neither one of those things extend community in ways that are generative and, and, and facilitate a growth that um, removes power from, from the table. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, the church is as complicit in this as any other organization because um, 
we, you know, we share these tropes of common table and everyone is welcome and all means all and, um, but we're still the ones that are setting the table and inviting people to come in. I mean, there is still ownership over the table. Yes. And if we are to, you know, really kind of be in that kind of relationality, um, what, what Robin often describes as en conjunto, the togetherness, not just the, not just the, the relationship um, with barrier, but the togetherness that, again, kind of weaves us and interknits us together. Changes us. Changes us. Mm -hmm. The power piece is not only eliminated, but um, in many ways has to be offered and extended to shift to those on the underside. Yes. And that we're not inviting them to the table from a scarcity model. Right. 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 We're inviting them to the table of abundance and also to change that language that it doesn't coincide with definitions of capitalism. Right. Right. Or salvation. Yes. Ooh. Yes. Well, <laughs> on that, that note. I mean, that took like a, that took like a, not just a left-hand turn, but like a U-turn. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know where, I don't know where we are now in the city, but. No. <laughs> but, but I think that's good. Um, I, I did want to open it up to. Yes. Any questions. Yes. In the audience. We've, we've, you know, kind of the heady, tried to bring down some of the, the heady concepts, but, um. <laughs> Maybe y'all can help bring us into some examples if, if there's any questions in the space. And I'm gonna use the restroom. <laughs> Tommy runs away. Not really. I know. Any question is okay about anything. It doesn't have to be what we talked about right. <laughs> necessarily. And we're good with silence because that's not conflict. Can you use the mic? So as we think about kind of the diversity of tactics, right? Um, to figure out kind of who is questioning in proper faith, who is just trying to stay at the head of the table, so to speak, right? So for instance, pastor, you're part of the church that's going through its own little conflict mm -hmm. right now, right? Mm -hmm. To help see that oppressors themselves need freedom. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking for myself specifically, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, but there are those that are trying to lead others into the fray instead of those that maybe are kind of caught in the fray. And the tactics to help those people may look unique in each circumstance, if this idea makes any sense at all. Yeah, can you expand a little? Can you either offer an example or just expand a little bit about like a tactic that you're curious about or just a story or something that yes. like... Uh, for those of us that work in, say, a corporate space, mm -hmm. a conversation with, say, a CEO is going to look a lot different than with an employee who might agree with the CEO, but I can ask certain questions to that employee 
that may bring them along, whereas I can't ask the CEO, so you know how you are oppressed by this company, if that question makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I have never worked in corporate America. <laughs> However, I get asked a lot to come talk with corporate America, which is always a very interesting invitation. I also get asked to preach, which I'm like, I left the church years ago, and so <laughs> all to say I, I live a very odd life. Um, you know, our corporation, well, I think we, I think we've, I mean, going back to the sort of historical amnesia, we, we forget that corporations are made up of people with real stories. And I think we, I think we, we don't realize how harmful hierarchies are mm. and how in corporate America hierarchies are weaponized against people, which then silence them so that, so that they don't ask for help or for example, why, you know, why did women not disclose, or people with uteruses didn't disclose they were pregnant for a long time, right? Um, so, I, you know, I don't know. My my goal in life is not to change corporate America, but but I am curious how our corporations can be invested in relationship over over hierarchies that only privilege transactions for relationships. And so how do we, I, I mean, I don't think, I mean, you can have caucus groups in a, in a corporation, but how do you actually facilitate relationship in corporations? And I think there needs to be some kind of um, discipline or practice around imagination. I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think institutions are bad inherently. That I'm not on that side of the argument. Um, I don't know that we will ev ever burn down things. I mean, I do think we should close prisons because I don't think they're useful. But, but when it comes to sort of institutional life, I mean, even the family is a kind of institution. And so, so how do we actually create generative institutions? That, that is my question. And, and if we can do that on a small scale with our families, can, can we extrapolate and do that on a large scale and build in community? You know, I mean, why, I mean, Activist Theology Project, we're, we're a team of four, but on any given team call, we may have 30 opinions on one thing. And what's been really important to me is even though, even though it was sort of my idea and let's launch this thing, what's really important to me is for people to have agency. And I think, um, I think in corporate America, you're punching a time clock, you don't have agency, and therefore there's no imagination. And so I, I wonder how can our institutional lives, and, th and this goes for the church too, right? Um, the people who have agency are the decision makers. Mm -hmm. And that oftentimes gets us into trouble and actually doesn't foster community. I mean, a prime example is, and people ask me all the time, why don't you just do a talk there? Why, why do you insist on being in, in, in conversation? And I'm like, because I think that's more relational. Even tomorrow, 
is today Saturday? Yeah, even tomorrow for church, I, I didn't want to be a talking head. I wanted to be in conversation and do a dialogical sermon. And, and, that, is, and that is about um, my pedagogical practice. And so I think in institutional life, what is our pedagogy? What are we teaching people? What is our orientation around pedagogy? What are our values around teaching and learning? Is the CEO a learner just as much as a teacher? Or is the CEO just a teacher? And, and, and if so, that then shows up in how people are either agents or not agents. But that's just, that's just sort of off the cuff, my thinking. Well, thank you for going first, because it allowed me to formulate <laughs> my answer. Um, I worked 20 years in corporate America and also have pastored congregations. And so I, I, have, a, I have a perspective that um, is actually really tough <laughs> on both, I think. Um, I think my, my response to a question around a diversity of, tac of tactics really relies on those in power having the awareness of the ways in which they need to divest from their work and their role in order to then open up space for other work to happen. And I think that that, work, that, that can take shape in a multitude of ways. In, in a corporate setting, that divestment might be in the form of, you know, uh, it might be monetary. It might be in the form of stock options where the CEO who's making like stupid money, money, money that, that, that is really unnecessary, you know, finds ways to divest of a portion of that to then reinvest in a, a kind of practice of relationality that is actually generative, generative, gen, generative for the organization. Um, in the church, you know, that might be that, you know, a, a congregation recognizes from the very beginning, before the appointment of any person in the pulpit or in the boardroom, that the role of that person is not to be the role that has always been assumed to be the role that that person is going to have. I mean, I heard somebody say, um, I heard a pastor say the other day, and, and it, it still didn't, like, it, it, it intrigued me. It didn't sit well with me, but it intrigued me. He said, um, we're not, he said, I'm not a pastor of a church who does work in the world. I'm a member of a community that seeks to end the death penalty, and sometimes I preach on Sundays. Now, some of that was performative in that, I mean, he's still getting paid six figures to be the pastor of a church that, yes, is very involved in Tennessee in helping to end the death penalty. Um, and so his creativity, while valid, also doesn't divest him from part of, like, part of the icky nature of, like, yes. the work that he's doing yeah. every Sunday, right? Yeah. And yet, 
there's a curiosity that I have around the framing of that language. You know, what would it look like if churches were not communities led by anyone, but communities built on interrelationality where really those with the gifts for doing certain things only did them because it was their turn or mm. their their like that was that that was the role that they have assumed apart from the fact that we think that that role then also holds power mm -hmm. um, and so this diversity of tactics conversation has to has to start with those in power being willing to divest in the first place. And I, and I fear that we are not there yet. I fear that we are not even close to there. No, no, and so, not at all. And so my, my indictment would be, you know, it, it's all well and good for us to think that this is possible, but quite frankly, what we need is we need those in power to, to do way more work around understanding and, and acknowledging the way that supremacy culture and racism and classism and, and phobias are showing up in their real, real time day to day, and then be committed to a reparative process to fix that um, versus asking them to just also be a teacher and a learner. Um, because either way, that's still gonna, like, it's still gonna ascend them in power to a place where mm -hmm. um, they think they should be. Well, and this language of divesting from, from power and privilege, it, in, in, in my perspective, it means helping people become agents mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and returning yeah. power to people. You use yes. compost, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, when, when I, I mean, I, I sort of think about this through the, through the lens of um, the Zapatistas and, and, and the ongoing battle in Chiapas, why that's so important is, and, and it happened in this country too, we have taken power away from indigenous people and we have consolidated power at the top. Yeah. And so it's not just, it's not just divesting from power and privilege, it is the tangible act of returning power to the people. Why, why do the police need to be de defunded? Because there's too much power consolidated in that particular institution that is then weaponized against particular bodies. Um, so, yeah. I think I'll add to that. I don't, I don't, I, I think your question had to deal with something with corporations. How do you, might we talk to a CEO versus a, a person? Um, and really what helped me, I is kind of thinking about this is how you use the concept of motion. Um, everything is in motion, and so I think different tactics for the time, right? Mm -hmm. Different tactics for the context um, of, of the situation. I don't think that power in and of itself is bad because we all have power, right? right? right. We mm -hmm. all have power. It's how are we using right. that power, right? The, 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 
like defund the police creates this disruption, this invited response for people, but that's because our, our bodies are, are attuned to the negative. What's not um, said in that conversation is, is what well, we defunding to resource community. Right, yes. Right, because when we look at, say, yeah. Charlotte, for instance, our police budgets half the city budget. <laughs> so mm-hmm. what resources right. could we use to cut down on criminality instead of making criminals, right? right? So as that relates to corporations, I'm not saying that labor, uh, uh, labor unions are the answers, but they are. So what, what exists in there, like unions are, are, are people, power in theory, but they also replicate systems of, of oppression. So for me, operating in this queer black body, right, um, I have to move from what are the things that empower me? And so when I'm coaching or consulting with corporations, I'm usually asking that question, how can you empower yourself? How are you relating to one another? Like you, you know, the boss can only do if you do, you have agency to say no. Like how can we be disruptive? Um, Because a company's not gonna fire all of their staff. It's just not, like it's just not, right? So it's how do we begin to shift the mentality of, oh, we actually do have, have power here. But then also from a CEO or, or C-level suite perspective, we have to recognize the ways in which we've restructured our corporations to emulate the first system um, in this country of, of, of human labor, slavery. Yes. Right? And that's a really, really uncomfortable conversation. But it, like, like the, the, the strands are traceable. Um, if the end goal is going to be profit, like how do we transition corporations end goal from being, I can make as much profit as I want to, actually I want everybody in this company to be flourishing, Mm -hmm. down from the janitor to the CEO. Mm -hmm. Like I think those, and those aren't, that looks different for each institution because each institution is on a different part of that journey. Or each institute, you know, maybe that means the institution needs to die because the way that they're in relationship to the environment is killing the earth, right? So there's a lot, I think it's layered. Mm -hmm. There's questions Mm -hmm. there. And so, but we can't um, take it outside of the context of the day and that everything's always in motion. Mm -hmm. So there's no one size fits all answer. Mm -hmm. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, um, you all kind of said it all. (laughs) 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 But... um, the one thing I just kept thinking about when y'all were talking in addition to all this, and I've worked in corporate America a little bit, um, but I think it, it still comes back to the embodiment of how can we embody um, being okay with conflict um, when we're talking to, um, for lack of better terminology, superiors. How can we um, sit with that piece? How can we practice teaching our bodies that when we have conflict or disagreement or we're pushing back a little bit to not go into fight or flight because that's what we're trained to do. Everything runs smoothly if we all follow the piper down the road. Um, And learning that our voice, even if not received, is still worthy. Uh, And so it's just, there's a big embodiment practice, even in corporate America, which personally, feels very disembodied. 
um, right. and one that I actually have a little PTSD from. But um, I think part of it for me, if I look back, is to see that I was so scared of being in conflict or speaking some of my truth that I caused harm in the relationship and I caused the relationship not to move forward. Um, and, you know, speaking your truth sometimes costs you. And so uh, another thing is we have to sit within our bodies. What are we willing to let it cost us? Mm, which goes back to that point, Robin, of, of that was so impactful for me that you were afraid of being thrown away Discarded. in the relationship. And our practices, when we think, you know, kind of the whole, even the notion of uh, uh, right to work or work to right state or whatever, right? It is it's embodied in policy to throw people away if yes. they're not doing what we want them to do. How do we start to shift that, right? How do we start to know um, we're, we're in relationship together and, and recognize that just because we need space apart doesn't mean that we're out of relationship. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Was that helpful? Yeah. Good. <laughs> Any other questions? So in relation to kind of what he said, right? So in relation to what he said, how would you guys respond to that in regards to the military, in particular women in the military or in federal positions? Because I find that a lot of times in order for a woman to be heard, Mm -hmm. They have to become, quote unquote, disruptive. Mm -hmm. Now, how can a woman be heard without being disruptive or aggressive? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's possible, personally. Yeah, it's a very hard question. Well, I think because, you know, the system's in motion, right? And so to any time we want to change something, there has to be a disruption. There has to be that. There has to be a rupture. Yeah. Um, and, and so there, there, there's so much that goes into that, right? There's, um, if, if you watch the Supreme Court hearings, the, the question uh, that, that was asked of uh, Justice Ketanji Brown, like, what, what is a woman, right? We, we agree on, on, on definitions, right? And so... Um, or do we? Or we do, right, right? But then... Well, Marsha Buck. <laughs> <laughs> the beauty of the queer body, the beauty of the trans body, is right. that it interrupts or ruptures those definitions. Mm. And we have to make a choice. Um, do we honor the humanity that we are all carrying, or do we look at it as deficient because it's not normative? But I, there's no, there's no evidence that when making change that it will not be disruptive um, or ruptured, mm -hmm. um, and that's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. That's traumatic, um, and that takes healing. Yeah, and I think we all have a different level of or um, tolerance for risk. And it is, it is in our own individual kind of risk analysis that we determine our capacity for disruption and where, at what point 
up to what point we are comfortable and after what point we are uncomfortable. And for some of us, that risk evaluation asks us to look really critically at the things that we feel as if we need to be safe. For a lot of us, especially those of us who identify as, as women or people with uteruses, autonomy, which then also equates to monetary capacity to live, equals safety. And, and for many of us, it is only up to that barrier that we are willing to risk disruption. Because, th I mean, there, there are elements of our ability to survive and what we believe is necessary for our survival, those things come into play. And, and I think that, you know, I have, I have been a part of, I've been very deeply a part of a disruption that changed the course of my ministry. I was able to do that and to risk what I risked because of my privilege. Not all of us are in that same sphere. And, and so I think that's why it's a hard question for me because there, there is a risk analysis, um, both from a safety standpoint, from a, an, an ability to, to live standpoint, potentially a physical harm standpoint mm -hmm. that many of us have to evaluate whenever disruption is something that we are thinking about. Those things are all very real for us. And, um, you know, putting our, our, our bodies or our mouths in the way of power has consequences. And I think we have to, individually, we have to determine at what point those consequences mm -hmm. are, are um, okay for us or not okay for us. I like um, Deepa Iyer has uh, this framework called kind of roles in social change. And I think one of the roles is disruptor on there, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so disruption in and of itself is a role, but not mm -hmm. everybody needs to be doing the disrupting, right? Um, just a critical mass to create change. Um, Andre Henry in their new, uh, his new book uh, talks about the 3% rule when talking about social change. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and so if, if disruption being the disruptive force is creating a sensation in your body that creates this feeling that we are not able to contain that disruption, then maybe disruption is not your role, and that's okay. Even though society says it's not, okay. it is okay. okay. But then there's also the uh, opposite end of it of, what is the care that you're needing when your body is naturally disruptive in the environment? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's also an angle that we um, 
need to talk about when we're talking about restructuring, creating communities. What, how are we also building care into this? Can I take this a little bit different oh, direction? Oh yeah, please, please. So this is a, this is a fascinating uh, question. Um, I just uh, was on a, on a radio show in the UK with a mixed race black ordinan for the Church of England who is who thinks a lot differently than than I do so I was I was very excited to be in conversation with him and for him um, sex and gender is given he reads Genesis and says God created Adam and Eve and God created man and woman. And I want to say sex and gender is not given. Both sex and gender are social constructs. And, and we have inherited a view of woman that is in direct relation to how we understand white men. And, and, and I want to say that's really toxic yes. and harmful. Very. And it has been weaponized against women for centuries. And when you think about women in the military, women in that sense are expected to perform as a white man. And I think that then what happens is that women internalize patriarchy and sexism and perform from that place, and I, and which creates a lot of disassociation and a lot of disembodiment. And I think o only, only folks who are carefully able to untease that are they able to get to a place of healing. I wish that we didn't have a military. I wish that we, things weren't militarized. Um, I, wish, I wish that our police wasn't militarized. But I do think that we have to think really critically about how are we using these categories, categories of woman, categories of man, um, because they are, they're power relations. And woman and man are impacted by the ways in which power shows up in the world. And if we, and that's also not new. Judith Butler wrote a book in the '90s about this called Gender Trouble. So, if we are not thinking when we talk about sex and gender, if we are not all also already talking about power and how power shows up, then we actually may be harming people. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you took it there. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that question. Mm -hmm. So let's kind of um, close our circle, mm -hmm. so to speak. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. <laughs> um, I, I know we were supposed to kind of talk about permission to be in the activist theology project, but I, I think um, for those here listening, for those listening online, you're, you're getting to witness. Um, permission to be is about being who you are yes. in a space, but also um, having space to question, to shift mm -hmm. 
that being. It mm. is permission to not just be, but to become. Because mm-hmm. mm. um, we're all on that journey. We're all in motion. Um, what would you add to that? Just a little bit. The permission to be is about being in community. It's about permission to be who you are and who you are to become within a communal space. Because I feel like if we have permission to be who we are, if we know that we're not going to be thrown away, then the dynamics and the possibilities of connection are endless. Mm, I love that. Mm, love that. Yeah, and the Activist Theology Project is a little different than the Activist Theology Podcast. Um, only in that the podcast kind of really centers around conversations that um, illustrate the tangible ways that we can get our hands dirty in the work, Mm -hmm. Uh, the ways that liberation can be possible if we are all to actually deeply engage Mm -hmm. in in real ways, both... um, in our, our personal, our interpersonal, and our community relationalities. Yeah. Um, the Activist Theology Project um, is a blend of, of curriculum writing and convenings and um, community-based engagement that does that same thing, but also kind of extends its tentacles into systems um, that uh, you know can can benefit from the work. Mm-hmm. Um, we just launched a really beautiful online community for the Activist Theology mm-hmm. Project called the Porch. Um, oh. It really is just a place. Porch sitting. Porch sitting. <laughs> it's just a place where we're gathering and um, you know offering conversation channels for conversation and asking questions and we'll be offering some some coursework there mm-hmm. folks want to engage in really specific kind of topical based work um, but yeah I think that you know we really we really want for our spaces to um, not just encourage us to you know critically analyze yeah. um, what is happening in the world and the ways in which um, the body politic and the theological body are intertwined, mm-hmm. but also how we actually put our physical bodies into the work mm-hmm. in real and tangible ways, mm-hmm. um, and and how and how that might look. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to be back with y'all. Oh, such a joy. Thank you, so yes, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you, audience. Thank you, everybody, for coming out. Thank you. Yo, that was our show. Thanks for listening to Permission to Be. Um, thank you to our guests. So if you want more information, head on over to permissiontobepodcast.com to check out the show notes. Get some more information on our guests that we post over there. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, leave a rating. If there's somebody that you want to see on this podcast telling their story, we also want to hear from you. So make sure to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, Permission to Be Podcast, and we'll see you soon.